Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 74 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Steven Erickson, author of the 10-volume epic fantasy series Malaz and Book of the Fallen. The series grew out of a pen-and-paper role-playing game that Erickson developed with Ian Cameron Esselmont, who's also written novels set in the Malazan world. Erickson is trained as an archaeologist and anthropologist, and attended the Iowa Writers' Workshop. His latest novel, Forge of Darkness, is the first in a prequel trilogy set hundreds of thousands of years before the main series. Then stick around after the interview as guest geek Doug Cohen joins us to discuss examples of epic fantasy and short fiction, including my new anthology, Epic. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Steven Erickson. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, so you recently wrapped up your 10-book epic fantasy series, Malaz and Book of the Fallen, and you've just written a new book called Forge of Darkness. You want to tell us about that? Well, I guess by about book eight, or maybe book seven, I was starting to throw some flashbacks into uh, a very early period in the history of one of the people's. And that started to intrigue me, and I obviously I was looking past the completion of the series and thinking what I was going to do next. And so when I finally finished the series, um, I had a fair idea of uh, wanting to go back to the almost the creation myths or, or the cosmology of the Malazan world. Some people on the MalazanEmpire.com fan site were sort of saying, "Well, why go for something that where we know what's happened?" My response would be, "You only think you know what's happened." One of the things I'm, I'm sort of pushing for is the notion that history, it's not an accurate portrayal of anything at all. And certainly for characters who are long-lived, and I mean long-lived in the sense of hundreds of thousands of years, one has to assume their memories will twist through time as well. I mean, our memories twist through time, so we sort of extend that or, or push that in an exponential fashion then that sense of what the past was for these characters uh, may be quite different from the reality of what it was. And so I wanted to sort of play those two off each other. Uh, so obviously a large number of the readers that pick up uh, Forge of Darkness will have read all of the previous books, but is it something that you think that uh, newcomers could start with as well? Or Well, I certainly hope so. Um, I've not really heard back from uh, anyone who's not read the Malazan series. And yeah, I would certainly hope that somebody can use this as another sort of gateway uh, into, into the Malazan world. Uh, it, was, it was written with both in mind. Okay, so this book has a large number of POV characters. Uh, how did mm -hmm. you decide which characters to make the POV characters? Well, primarily I wanted to avoid most of the main players from the Malazan series. I wanted voices that were witness to these characters as opposed to the characters themselves. I suspect a lot of people wanted sort of points of view of, of Anamander Rake and, and various others, but if I'm going to sort of reveal, you know, these characters that are viewed quite heroically in the Malazan series, you sort of remove the magic out, uh, out of them, and I didn't want to do that. Uh, so in interviews, you said that you're glad that uh, people are talking about your work as an example of postmodernism. What sort of conversations have been going on around that? Well, basically, I'm having an argument with a scholar who studied my stuff, where I, I'm calling it postmodern, he's calling it post-structural. We sort of acknowledge each other's points, but um, neither of us budge. So, mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, there's there's a strong postmodern element to uh, a lot of the narrators uh, within uh, the Malaysian series. Um, in other words, they are aware they are telling a story. And they also are aware that they have the option of manipulating that story. Uh, Kruppis is, I think, one of the best examples of that. He narrates within the story, including applying the third person um, to himself. And so you can sort of sense that he's just he's, he's messing with everyone's heads. Hmm. And they may be the characters' heads, but they're also the readers' heads. And that's kind of a reflection of how I'm approaching it as a writer as well, that one is aware that there's manipulation running all the way through this. 
So why, why does that critic think that your work is post-structuralist? You'd have to ask him. <laughs> <laughs> the thing with scholars is they actually don't really want the authors around. <laughs> um, it sounds weird, but it's, it certainly seems to be the case that it, we're far better off as far as the scholars are concerned, if we've been dead for 20 years, it makes it easier to just sort of build up a thesis without having it contradicted, <laughs> potentially, by the person who actually worked it. And I think there's also sometimes an assumption that the author is entirely unaware of what they're up to. Um, and that's certainly not the case with me. I mean, are there uh, particular fan sites or message boards that are the best for uh, reading analysis of, of your work or discussion of it? I, not that I'm aware of. Um, I'd love to see a lot more, but um, the fantasy genre in general, it's, it's pretty hard to find people who are approaching it in a serious fashion. And then there's sort of an internal ghettoization where fantasy series are in, you know, given less regard than um, fantasy standalones and that kind of thing. So, yeah, we're fighting against a fairly consistent tide. Uh, I heard you were on a panel at uh, the ICFA, the International Conference on the Fantastic and the Arts, with Stephen R. Donaldson, and he was talking about how fantasy is actually the spine of Western literature. We both were. Yeah, he used spine, I used tree. Metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> Epic fantasy. Uh, it is the core of, of literature, and it, you can reach back to Gilgamesh or, or uh, the Iliad or all of these things. And they are all epic fantasies. There is a tendency to step out on the branches and crawl onto the twigs. And you, then you get really excited by, you know, innovations you see out in those twigs. And, and the argument that, that I, I was certainly making, and I'm sure Steve would as well, is that, well, actually, those aren't innovations at all. Um, if you, if you actually knew what the tree or the, or the spine was, was all about, uh, you'd see that that's been covered. Uh, <laughs> some time ago. I guess a perfectly natural desire to sort of, if you're going to specialize as a scholar in something, you find something that's manageable. A, a six-book series or a ten-book series or, or whatever is a hefty thing to, to sort of invest yourself into. But we were speaking very much on behalf of, um, let's get at least somebody looking back at those who never ne never left the, in the trunk of the tree and are continuing to write epic fantasy going on, what is this now, 3,000 3, years, you know, 4,000 years. So it seems like the success of HBO's Game of Thrones has brought a large new group of readers to epic fantasy. Um, have you witnessed any shift recently in the popularity of the genre? Well, I, I, it's funny because people sort of predicted that with uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, the films, and then Harry Potter and, uh, and all the rest. I think what tends to happen is what I, I've certainly called exceptionalism. And that is where the individual is sort of extracted from the genre in which they are writing. And the popularity of the genre itself is actually becomes less relevant than the individual. I think if anything is going to have that kind of effect, it's going to be probably computer games, console games, that kind of thing. And for myself, I'm, I'm constantly frustrated by most fantasy uh, computer games for the simple reason that the stories are just, they're lacking. And um, and they dealt with some companies that wanted to do the Malazan stuff and, and sort of becoming aware that from their point of view, they want 80% action and 20% story. And I guess in many respects, I want it the other way around, so... Are, are there any, uh, are there any uh, video games, uh, any fantasy video games that you do like and would recommend? Uh no, <laughs> no. I, I yeah. I guess I guess that's just the answer. I, I suppose I, I did a bit of uh, Skyrim stuff, and yeah, visually it's fantastic, and it does have a storyline that uh, one follows. But for me, it it's still it and it ends up becoming, I guess, too sort of trope driven, sort of the, the medieval um, Northern European kind of approach to things. Uh, I guess. Elves, dwarves, you know, all that stuff is, is stuff that I'm not, I've sort of been actively writing, or not, not against, but I've been ignoring, put it that way. And so, when I look at the games, they, they tend to fall into those cliches and tropes very quickly. 
So it seems like epic fantasy readers are some of the most outspoken fans in terms of both loving and hating certain authors. Uh, we've seen this a lot lately with George R. R. Martin. What do you think it is about epic fantasy that inspires such vehemence? Well, I don't know. I, I, one of the things I suppose is it's one of the probably one of the most most immersive uh, fictional forms, where you, as a reader, you're investing over over a span of years um, into uh, a particular worldview or world itself, fictional world, and, and the characters within it. I don't know. It, isn't it part of sort of the, the geek cool to either you know love something and then hate something else, and then that can sort of be raised up, I guess, um, to indicate differences, uniqueness, um, whatever quality you name it. I remember talking to George a few times. Uh, both of us are kind of baffled at just the uh, vehemence <laughs> between <laughs> between our fan bases, which we don't see ourselves in competition. Which is probably a good thing since it's so well. <laughs> but, um, you know, I've been a reader long before I was a writer, so I'm a reader of fantasy. As far as I was concerned, um, it's almost as if there is no competition because fantasy readers will read everything. You know, they're the most voracious readers that, that I know of. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I've, I've been to people's places, just various people I know who read this stuff. I look on their bookshelves, and yeah, they'll they'll be Martin, they'll be Erickson, they'll be um, Robin Hobb, they'll be you know, you name it. They're all up there uh, on their bookshelves. Well, I, I don't know if you noticed, but on the dust jacket for Forge of Darkness, it says that this book quote should appeal to fans of George R. R. Martin for its characters and intrigue, but goes leaps further in the realm of imagination. Uh, mm. It sounded kind of seems like well, fighting it, words. Did you? I assume you had nothing to do with that. Uh, no, I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> I think actually I. Ask for it may have been too late that, that when I somebody pointed that out to me because that's a tour edition, isn't it? Yeah, I think I probably sent off an email saying, "Can you pull that comment?" Uh, but it probably was too late. Uh, so one idea of yours I really like is the idea that magic swords start screaming the first time you take hold of them. How'd you come up with that idea? Uh, I've often said that fantasy is the one genre where you can take a metaphor and make it real. Well, if you consider sort of the trauma and the horror and the mayhem of battle. And then if I were to sort of take that metaphor and place it in a weapon, then of course the weapon would scream. But it would also be driven to madness uh, through repetition of, of these scenes. So the laughter is there as well. I know there's you know, many novels and many stories where swords have a voice and quite often seductive one, or they have a will of their own. I like the notion of the will being completely mysterious and, and unknowable to the wielder of the weapon. It's almost more horrifying to not explain the mind that's in the weapon and to just sort of have to react to it. Okay, so I was just reading kind of um, discussion of your books online, and I thought it was interesting. A couple of people mentioned that a lot of your characters, even sort of commoners, have these long philosophical discussions. And some people were questioning how realistic that was. I'm just curious what you think about that. Some of the, the smartest, wisest people I've met were, oh, I'll give you an example, is um, a guy who was hired with his shotgun to take care of our camp in Belize uh, on an archaeology dig. No education, um, no teeth. And yet, if you were to sit and talk with him, um, this guy thought about everything. and And he kept himself informed on world, you know, world events, and had read a whole series of books on philosophy. I think the assumption I've, I've been fighting against it for a long time in terms of creating characters is that one assumes almost a level of intelligence or lack thereof on the basis of class, and and I, I don't see it. Uh, I've never experienced it. Quite often, you won't get those heavy conversations with somebody who is struggling to stay alive. But at the same time, if you were to somehow sort of sit down on a park bench and start talking, you might be surprised. It's easy to sort of, especially as a fiction writer, to sort of fall into that kind of class consciousness where you pigeonhole or you create characters who are minor characters uh, with very little standing and, and you give them no brains. I mean, I suppose it would be easy to do it that way, but I'm I'm definitely not into that. And I have talked to soldiers who think, uh, veterans or whatever, um, who think a lot about what they're up to. 
Um, so I don't find it uh, in any respect unusual. Uh, so one character in Forge of Darkness is a painter uh, who gets very intense and bossy when he paints. Um, and I know you're a painter yourself. Did your interest in painting inspire that character at all? To some extent, sure. Um, but also, I, I knew there are some other themes that are, that are running through, through the trilogy. And they relate to how does a civilization destroy itself. And one of the things that I'm sort of approaching is the various forms of art have to be destroyed first. Uh, the meaning of art, if you will. Uh, and so this first novel is, is very much tied into the painter. And unfortunately, I had a character who showed up originally in the eighth book, I think, of the Malazan Book of the Fall, and that was sort of the ideal character for approaching things as a painter. It, it did help that, that I have been, have been a painter and started as an illustrator and all the rest. So it might be more challenging when I, when I move on to some other forms in the next book. We'll see. Could, could you elaborate about a little bit on that? The idea of art being the first step in civilization collapsing? You're saying that that's sort of the first symptom? Certainly. I think when art ceases to oppose or to stand outside the desires of the power block of a particular civilization, it gets into trouble. And I'm, I'm really generalizing here, but you can often see how art in the past is a reflection of the health of a particular uh, civilization. There was a, a strong period of uh, high propaganda, say in Roman art, especially in the sculptures, elevating the emperors basically to almost godlike or demigod status. You see that in, in paintings of, of royalty in Europe as well you know, oversized compared to the horse and then looking fit in their armor, even though they never were. All of these things are basically intended to reinforce the status quo of, of whatever element is in power uh, at the time. And then you, you see the contrast sometimes when art moves in the other direction. I know there was a, a grotesque period for, for Roman art as well as Greek art that sort of removed the idealization of, of the human form and um, it probably was a reflection of the slow collapse, or quick collapse, if you will, of the civilization uh, at hand. And, and so art is definitely a reflection. And if it gets co-opted, which, uh, let's face it, advertising is the greatest example of co-opting art uh, you can think of, it sort of removes the, the social function, I think, uh, one of the social functions, the purposes of art. I've also heard you say that as a result of fencing injuries, you have sort of an ever-growing exoskeleton on your arm. Uh, can you tell us about that? <laughs> Only when I fence. I, I've broken my right index finger, uh, the knuckle, a couple of times. Uh, once fencing and, and another time on a hand pump well at a farm. Yeah, I picked up a lot of injuries that sort of weaken, um, well, how would I describe it, the, the vertical strength of, of my forearm. Uh, or my hand specifically. And in fencing, you hold the weapon in such a way as a lot of the weight is actually sitting on your index finger. And so another fencer, all they have to do basically is push down on um, the weapon, and I can't resist it. So I went to a hand clinic, and I got this molded plastic thing that sort of slides over the upper part of my, my right hand. And that actually allows me to, to actually continue fencing. <laughs> so... uh that's the only exoskeletal element that, <laughs> that I can think of. You know, I, I recently watched this documentary called Reclaiming the Blade, which was about how ancient medieval sword fighting techniques were more effective than modern fencing. Uh, what do you think about that? Here in Victoria many years ago, um, I was invited to a Society of Creative Anachronism event, and it was period fencing. And I showed up with my epée. And um, I was invited to a number of duels, including people with two weapons. And um, it may have been a quality that they, they weren't particularly good, but I sort of toasted them all using an Olympic-style of fencing. I, I sort of went away from that and thought, well, I suspect one of the reasons is what Olympic-style fencing is is almost a perfection of the form over centuries now that actually moves away from some of the styles of earlier fencing that actually are probably not particularly useful 
in Olympic style fencing, the whole point of your positioning is you're standing sideways to your target, is to reduce your target area, uh, your own target area, and to also reduce the amount of movement you need to defend that target area uh, with your own weapon. Now, fencing in the round, especially with two weapons, at least the people I faced were mostly facing me sort of head on, which meant that their backward and forward movement, their ability to move was severely uh, limited. And so, in other words, I could lunge forward or even step forward much faster than they could back up because they don't have a back leg and a front leg. They have two legs sort of sitting side by side. And so my sense was that I, I, I'm, I'm always a bit dubious when, when sort of people sort of say, well, this was the old style and um, is far more um, practical or far more efficient than the modern Olympic style. I actually, I, I'm having trouble being convinced by it. I mean, that pretty much does it for our questions. You want to just talk a little bit more about what you're working on now and what you have coming up? Um, well, I'm writing Fall of Light, which is the second in the trilogy. And I did mess around with something. Uh, I was on some book touring uh, this last uh, few months. So I did something that I think is going to show up this week on um, Tor.com. I did a Q&A for them on Reaper's Gale, you know, the readers on the reread site. And at the at the end of my answers um, to the questions, I just added a, a chapter one of uh, something I've been working on. It, it's just, it's more having fun. I sort of have to let off some steam, and, and I'll probably continue it. It's going to be a shorter science fiction novel. And is there anything you can tell us about the Carsa Orlong trilogy that you'll be writing uh, after this one? Uh, not yet, not yet. I'll get this, you know, I'll get the next two books out of the way of the Carcanus one, and then um, probably towards the end of writing the third one, I'll start really putting my, my thoughts into the um, into the next one, the next trilogy. All right, great. So, Stephen Erickson, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. You're welcome. Thanks for the questions. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Stephen Erickson for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned for our panel today, we'll be discussing examples of epic fantasy and short fiction. And we're joined by a special guest geek, Douglas Cohen. He's the former editor of Realms of Fantasy magazine, and his short fiction has appeared in magazines such as Interzone and Weird Tales. He and John are also co-editing the upcoming anthology Oz Reimagined, New Tales from the Emerald City and Beyond. So, Doug, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. And so on one of our recent episodes, one of our guest geeks was wondering aloud if there really is much epic fantasy in short fiction. And John and I kind of jumped all over this person saying, hey, what about Conan the Barbarian? What about Fawford and the Grey Master? And so I edited that part out to <laughs> spare the our guest geek the embarrassment. But that got me thinking. I mean, I can definitely understand why someone would kind of think that because growing up, epic fantasy was really all about novels for me. I can really count on one hand the examples that come to mind of sort of epic fantasy, sword and sorcery kind of stuff that I read in short fiction. I mean, you had, I remember there were some Dragonlance Tales volumes that were short stories. Uh, I actually read Dragon Magazine. They published short stories. Uh, there was the Thieves' World anthologies. I mean, there were a couple of things like that, but it was really, I mean, compared to the number of novels I read, Virtually none of the epic fantasy kind of stuff I read was was short fiction. These examples that we can come up with, like Conan the Barbarian, Fawford and the Grey Mouser, these are things that I think of sort of as being before our time and things that I only kind of came back to later as an adult uh, and still I'm not super conversant with. So I'm just kind of curious, Doug, uh, how did you get so heavily into these uh, sort of classic pulp sword and sorcery kind of writers? It's really just a string of coincidence, to be honest. Like, before I was ever interested in science fiction or fantasy, I absolutely loved dinosaurs as a little kid. And my brother was a big comics fan. And I remember one time in second grade, I went with him to a comic store, and I was bored while he was buying his comics. And then I saw something with Kazar the Savage on the cover, who I had never heard of, but he was fighting a dinosaur. So I'm like, well, this looks kind of cool. So I started collecting Kazar comics. This went on for a couple of years. I started collecting some other comics. Then I learned about comic book conventions, and I went to a comic convention. 
And I went up to the first guy I saw at the comic convention, and I asked him, hey, do you have any Kazar comics? And he said, Kazar the Barbarian? No, I don't have any of those. And I walked away thinking, there is no Kazar the Barbarian in <laughs> comics, but there is a Conan the Barbarian in comics. Oh, they must be the same. So, you know, shortly after that, I bought a Conan comic, thinking that it would be pretty much like Kazar. And other than the fact that both characters get shirtless at times and are heavily muscled, they really weren't the same character at all. It was nothing like I expected, but it was absolutely amazing, even if it was like nothing like really Robert E. Howard's comics, I mean, stories either. And then I just started devouring the Conan comics. And then I started devouring the Robert E. Howard stories. I started devouring the pastiches based on Conan. I started reading the other sword and sorcery characters created by Robert E. Howard, like Call and Solomon Kane. And, you know, eventually that branched out into Elric, Fafford and Grey Mauser. I mean, I think it's interesting how heavily we associate epic fantasy with novels now. When you think that, like, when Lord of the Rings came out, it was a really a one-of-a-kind sort of thing. And I, my impression is that what happened then is that Lynn Carter sort of went and grabbed all this old sort of short fiction stuff and, and put it out in a series of anthologies. And that really kicked off the genre. I guess, John, I mean, you're, you're a fan of Elric, right? And I was thinking mm -hmm. that those, are sh those novels are so short, I, I would almost even consider them novellas or something. Yeah, no, they're definitely very short. Um, and yeah, I mean, most of, most fantasy books would not be published at that length uh, today. But, you know, it is an important distinction that, you know, Elric is really more sword and sorcery than epic fantasy. Um, I do have an Elric story in uh, my anthology epic, which is specifically epic fantasy as opposed to sword and sorcery. Um, but I think like that particular story was sort of a rare example of Elric where the the story in question was a very epic feeling type of story as opposed to the sword and sorcery feel that um, most of the Elric stories are. Although, obviously, the boundaries between the two are, are a little blurry. There's a lot of Elric short stories. Uh, some of them were sort of gathered together and like loosely connected. So they're kind of like a fix up or something. And there's a lot of novellas. But yeah, I mean, uh, there are several volumes of Elric stories that have been collected in omnibuses in, in recent years. And, uh, you know, several of those would have been books that were published as standalone books in the past. But like today, they're just too short to publish alone. So you end up with a omnibus of like three books together in one volume. And it looks like a like a regular sized book to today's audiences. OK, so, John, so then you went to work for the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, uh, kind of just out of college, right? Yeah. And then what was your experience with? epic fantasy uh, while you were working there? If you are making the distinction between epic fantasy and sword and sorcery, F uh, FNSF has published a fair amount of sword and sorcery. Uh, but uh, as far as epic fantasy goes, it's really, uh, I mean, I couldn't find anything from FNSF to actually include in, in my anthology epics. So, you know, I don't, I don't know how much of it they have ever published over the whole 70 years or whatever, but uh, I, I certainly didn't come up with any, uh, any, any examples that were worthy of inclusion in the, in the anthology. Well, one story that uh, occurs to me that was in FNSF that could qualify as epic fantasy, and you actually pointed this one out to me a while ago, John, was uh, Counting the Shapes by Yoon Ha Lee. Uh, yeah, I mean, that story is certainly um, something that I did consider. Um, I thought of it as more of a sword and sorcery type story, but I mean, I could definitely see it being called epic fantasy. Yeah, and I guess for people who are sort of wondering about the distinction between epic fantasy and sword and sorcery, we talked about this a lot in episode 54 in our discussion with Saladin Ahmed. But basically, epic fantasy stuff like Lord of the Rings and sword and sorcery stuff like Conan the Barbarian. And I think the distinction is pretty much meaningless in mm -hmm. most cases. I mean, certainly like in John's position where you're putting together an epic fantasy anthology and you have to pick 18 stories, I think it's sensible to really emphasize the epic mm -hmm. uh, quality uh, for that. But I think in most cases when you're just bringing up stories, as long as it's got an imaginary world and action adventure and swords and monsters and magic and stuff like that. I'm, I'm happy to call it epic fantasy, regardless of how, of whether there's a big army in it or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I was sort of handcuffed when I was doing epic because uh, the publisher, Tachyon, actually did uh, a sword and sorcery anthology uh, like this year. And, and, then, uh, and then we decided to do this epic fantasy one. And so it was like, 
given the fact that they just did one that was specifically sword and sorcery, um, and then this one that's supposed to be specifically epic fantasy, I, I had less leeway than I would have otherwise uh, to have included more sort of sword and sorcery type of stuff. Okay, so I mean, you know, John mentioned that, you know, the magazine that he used to work at, the magazine in fantasy and science fiction, didn't publish a whole lot of epic fantasy. Uh, the other two magazines, major magazines in the field, Analog and Asimov's, published even less. And the main outlet for epic fantasy and short fiction, when I entered the field, or, you know, for most of the, most of recent memory was the magazine Realms of Fantasy, where Doug uh, used to work, that he, the magazine he used to be the editor of, in fact. Uh, so Doug, why don't you just talk about going to work for Realms of Fantasy and the role of epic fantasy at that magazine? Well, I mean, Shauna McCarthy was the longtime fiction editor there, and she worked there from the first issue to the last. She was the one that first brought me aboard, uh, and I was her assistant with the fiction department at first, and then, you know, took on other duties outside of the fiction department over time. And when I first met her, obviously for the interview, I was very excited because I loved epic fantasy and sword and sorcery, and we talked, and she sent me home with a couple of issues of Realms of Fantasy to read because she asked me, have you read a lot of Realms of Fantasy? And I said, oh, you know, a fair amount, which was a bold-faced lie. <laughs> but I took it home and I read it, and I was actually a little disappointed by how little epic fantasy and sword and sorcery uh, I found in those issues. You know, they published some, but Shauna has very diverse tastes, and she was always very honest about it to me that epic fantasy and sword and sorcery, while she did publish them, they weren't really her thing. And I don't think she looked down upon it, but just a lot of the times what we received in the slush piles, it wasn't very good. It was a Tolkien ripoff. It was a Conan ripoff. Uh, it aspired to be a ripoff of Robert Jordan or George Martin in shortened form. You know, we definitely did have some, and it's fair to say that when I joined the team, we did publish a little more of it over time. And by no means did Realms of Fantasy ignore this kind of stuff. I mean, the first issue ever of Realms of Fantasy, there were two stories that easily fell in the category of epic fantasy, including the first story they ever published, which actually started off in of all places a tavern which hmm. is hmm. kind of the classic locale which has become a cliche at this point for where an epic fantasy story can start and the story that shauna published was by no means cliche but i think it was just something familiar to break readers in and she gradually branched off creating a lot more variation in the magazine from there I mean, just speaking of the first issue of Realms of Fantasy, you know, that had a, a, a Roger Zelazny Amber story in it. And that was my favorite series when I was a teenager. And I actually, since I, since I was a subscriber to Science Fiction Age, which was a science fiction magazine published by the same publisher, I actually got a free copy of the first issue of Realms of Fantasy in the mail when I was in high school. And it was just so exciting, you know, and I, I had no idea it was coming. And just to open up the mail and see on the cover of the magazine, you know, a new Roger Celeste, the Amber story was like so exciting. And then to actually be publishing stories in that magazine you know, seven or eight years later, something like that, mm. you know, just made that just really thrilling for me. And there were a lot of things about the, about realms of fantasy that really appealed to me. I mean, uh, every story had a really nice illustration, you know, sort of professionally done full color illustration. And so that was always really, really exciting to see. And it was a magazine that it was, I mean, they sold it in my local supermarket. Uh, which most uh, other fiction magazines they wouldn't carry. So I published, you know, five stories in that magazine. I guess one of which, called Seven Brothers Cruel, is you can make a strong case for being epic fantasy. And I guess I have a story called Save Me Please, sort of plays with epic fantasy tropes. It's kind of about video games. So I just want to throw in a, a good word for Realms of Fantasy. It was uh, a really uh, important part of my 20s. And I guess if, if for people who aren't don't follow short fiction really closely, Realms of Fantasy closed up a couple of years ago now. I don't know that, that I'll ever get get over that. But hmm. uh, but if you're still looking for actual quality uh, short fiction in a magazine form, Lightspeed does publish fantasy. <laughs> Half of every issue is fantasy. 
most epic fantasy fans are really like they're just interested in epic fantasy. And so it's like really hard to have any kind of magazine that's diverse that also includes epic fantasy because people who just like fantasy fiction, like in general, like they don't necessarily want an epic fantasy story. And the epic fantasy fans, they're generally not interested in, in the other stuff. So I think that's uh, one of the difficulties in, in including that type of stuff in a magazine. And I think that's probably why you see maybe less of it than you would otherwise, even though epic fantasy is very popular, you know, at least in novels. So uh, when we sort of first entered the field, epic fantasy short fiction was kind of at its lowest point of uh, respect, I would say. I think it's kind of gone up a little bit since then, as the George R. R. Martin stuff got really, really popular. And as people started putting out new epic fantasy magazines like Blackgate and Beneath Ceaseless Skies. I thought Legends, that anthology that Robert Silverberg, uh, Silverberg excuse me, put out a few years ago, I thought that was pretty important too. Just speaking personally, and I'm sure there are other epic fantasy fans like me, just it exposed me to epic fantasy in a shorter form. Now with that one, the brilliance was I'm going to take all the biggest epic fantasy authors in their biggest universes and put them all together. But it did like introduce these epic fantasy fans to the idea of these stories told in a shorter amount of pages on a somewhat smaller scale, but still epic. So, you know, it was so successful. It gave us the Legends 2 anthology. And, you know, I don't know if like epic John's anthology could have happened if there hadn't been mm -hmm. a Legends or a Legends 2. Yeah, I mean, I certainly I reprinted a couple stories from those two anthologies. And, and I mean, I, I could have used more, certainly. And I, I mean, I had to restrict myself from I mean, well, A, all the stories in the Legends anthologies were novellas. So they it was really hard to use too many of them from there. But also when you do a reprint anthology like Epic, you don't want to use too many stories from any one particular source because otherwise, like, you know, oh, well, I'm just like reprinting half of this book in my book. So what's the point of that? And it's like kind of ripping off the other anthology. But yeah, I mean, so several of the stories in those books, while certainly epic in scope, they were not what I would consider epic fantasy. Like, for instance, in the first one, there's a Dark Tower story by Stephen King, which is obviously an epic type of story, but it's not epic fantasy. And there's also a Norson Scott Card story uh, set in his Alvin Maker universe, which, again, I think is epic in scope, but is not what we typically consider epic fantasy. Okay, wait, so, so could you un unpack that a little bit? Why isn't Dark Tower or Alvin Maker epic fantasy? When people say epic fantasy, they think like that secondary world type of fantasy story where it's like sort of pseudo medieval type of thing with swords and everything. And so uh, neither the Dark Tower nor Alvin Maker uh, have those things like Alvin Maker is an alternate history fantasy story, you know, set in the real world. And the Dark Tower does go to another world, but it's also largely set in the real world. And there's guns and stuff. It's not really like swords and, and armor and that kind of thing. So. I mean, I think it's more about feel. Like, they don't feel like epic fantasy. Okay, but does it have to be pseudo-medieval, or are there examples that are not pseudo-medieval that you would consider epic fantasy? I mean, it's like, basically, when I think of epic fantasy, the term, like, I'm thinking, like, well, this is stuff like George R. R. Martin. This is stuff like Robert Jordan. And, you know, when you take it out of that context, of that, out of that pseudo-medieval context or whatever, like, I, I find it hard to imagine, um, you know, anything feeling like the same type of story. With Epic, what would you say are some of the stories that sort of push the boundaries of Epic fantasy mm -hmm. the furthest, like that maybe are sort of borderline cases you weren't yeah. sure whether to include them? Uh, probably the biggest one is uh, this Melanie Ron story. Uh, it's called Mother of All Russia. It's like a fantastical version of Russia. But, you know, given that it's so close to the real thing, you know, it really felt like Epic fantasy to me, but I can see a lot of people reading it and not thinking of it as Epic fantasy. Because it, you know, has the real world elements in there. Even though it's George R. R. Martin, I mean, The Mystery Night is one of the Duncan Egg novellas I included in this. And all of the Duncan Egg novellas really, like, to me, like, it, it was a bit of a struggle for me to, to determine which one of them actually felt the most epic. Um, and ultimately, I decided to go ahead and include one because, because it's set in that same world. And so by association, I felt like it was epic, even if the story itself didn't feel particularly epic. See, Doug, are there any stories that you want to mention uh, that have come out recently that uh, you think are good examples of epic fantasy and short fiction? 
I think one that resonated with me really, really deeply as an excellent example of epic fantasy, and this was published in, I believe it was the April 2009 issue of Realms of Fantasy. That's how much I liked it, that I can actually remember out of 101 issues, which issue this one appeared in, uh, was Sales Above Green Sea by Adam Corbin Fusco. Uh, it's the last pirate ship in the world uh, going on an adventure to find a treasure. And there's only like tiny pieces of land left in the world. Everything else has been submerged beneath the ocean or consumed by a creature called Leviathan. Beneath Ceaseless Skies has another story by Adam in this universe. And unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to read it yet. But that might give you a taste of what the world is like. So we had mentioned Beneath Ceaseless Skies before. They publish a lot of different kinds of secondary world fantasy. And if you're curious as a fan, you can check that one out online for free. I mean, the one that sort of comes to mind for me was Rachel Swirsky's The Lady Who Plucked Red Flowers Beneath the Queen's Window. It's certainly epic in time scale. Uh, the, the premise is that there is a, a woman, uh, she's sort of a part of a, a royal court, and is murdered. And her spirit keeps getting summoned back as a ghost to advise the living. Except each time she's summoned back, it's hundreds or thousands of years later, who even knows. And so everything that she ever knew, all the values that she believed in, all the kingdom that she served is, is completely forgotten. And not only is that forgotten, but every, sort of every glimpse she sees is forgotten by the next time someone gets around to summoning her up. So it really does give you the sense of the sweep of history and just the helpless feeling of, uh, of how everything just uh, crumbles to dust. Something that actually comes to mind now for me would be uh, Tales from Earthsea by Ursula K. Le Guin. I mean, John actually has one of the Le Guin stories in Earthsea in Epic. And I was actually thrilled to read that one because... I thought I had read everything that Ursula K. Le Guin had written in Earthsea, and I thought all the shorter works that she had written in Earthsea were in Tales from Earthsea. And then I saw this one, I'm like, oh, John, thank you so much, because I didn't know about this one. But Tales from Earthsea, I think, has some terrific stuff. Dragonfly is a, a favorite of mine from Earthsea. I believe that's in Tales from Earthsea, right? Yeah, she originally wrote it, I think, for the Legends Anthology, and I think yeah. that made her want to write some more Earthsea stories, and then she put out Tales from Earthsea. Yeah, it was definitely in Legends. Um, and that's, I mean, that's one of the reasons I ended up using the word of Unbinding instead. Uh, I mean, A, it's much shorter. It's a short story versus Dragonfly being a very long novella. Uh, but also, as I was saying, I didn't want to use too many stories from any one particular anthology. I actually did reprint Dragonfly in a recent issue of Lightspeed. So if, if you want to, you can go check that out in uh, whatever issue that was in. There was actually this Roger Zelazny story. I can't come up with a title off the top of my head, but it's basically, it's it's written as if it's the last chapter of an epic fantasy trilogy. You know, it's as if you were to write, say, the um, Gollum and Frodo wrestling over the ring in Mount Doom. Just write that as a chapter, you know, mm -hmm. or write that as a short story. And you would have this sense of all of this stuff happening leading up to that. But the story itself only actually covers that. And that was actually something, you know, Roger Zelazny apparently had trouble writing shorts, you know, containing his ideas to short story length. And one technique he had come up with was just to imagine the whole novel and then just write the, the last chapter uh, as a short story. Yeah, actually, though, uh, I mean, what you say about that Zelazny story reminds me, I mean, the, the Carrie Vaughn story in Epic is called uh, Strife Lingers in Memory. It's not quite the same thing, but it is kind of like a, a sort of, it sort of feels like it takes place after the Epic Fantasy series. Um, you know, not the last chapter, but it's like, you know, after... After the great epic has happened, it's like this, then this story happens. What, what have been some of the other anthologies that have come out recently, right? There was um, Jonathan Strawn and Lou Anders did a sword and sorcery one called Swords mm -hmm. of Dark Magic. Wasn't there a David Hartwell epic fantasy anthology recently? It was the sword and sorcery one from Tachyon that I was talking oh, about earlier. Uh, okay. So is yours the only explicitly epic fantasy one to come out in recent memory? I think so. Um, nothing else comes to mind. It's certainly the only one that's attempted to do this compilation of the best of all time sort of thing that, you know, like a reprint anthology on Epic Fantasy. It's the, it's the only one of those I can think of for sure. 
Well, so what stories are the most epic then? They, mm. you know, fit the criteria yeah. the best. Uh, I think probably uh, Homecoming by Robin Hobb, The Burning Man by Tad Williams, uh, The Alchemist by Paolo Bacigalupi. You want to just sort of say what kinds of stories those are? Uh, well, Homecoming is uh, set in Robin Hobb's uh, Realms of the Elderling series. Um, and so sort of by association, it's uh, it, it feels very epic. Is that the one where they, they find the city under the swamp? Yes. Yeah, that's a freaking awesome story. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I let I let off the book with that one largely because, yeah, A, it's awesome. And B, it's also it's like, you know, core epic fantasy. And I mean, Tad Williams, similar situation. Yeah, so I mean, his story, The Burning Man's part of his of memory, sorrow and thorn series, um, and so it sort of has similar connections and whatnot. You don't typically think of Orson Scott Card as someone that writes epic fantasy, but he has a story in John Zantho called Sand Magic, and I was pretty impressed with what he did with that one because the way it starts, you know, it feels like a secondary world setting, but it doesn't feel particularly epic, and then almost at the snap of his fingers toward the end of the story without really giving any big spoilers, the scale becomes pretty epic in a hurry. And then he wraps it up very smoothly. Oh, yeah, actually, uh, that story is related to a a series that Card's working on currently. Um, I don't remember the name of the series off the top of my head, but there's the first book was called The Lost Gate. Yeah, it's called The Um, Mither Mages. Oh, right, The Mither Mages. And actually, uh, that's one of a few stories that you can read uh, for free on the Epic website. If you go to johnjosephadams.com slash Epic, um, there's a few stories um, on the free reads page that you can just, uh, you know, you can read the whole text for free. So you can read the forward, which is written by Brent Weeks, and you can read my introduction, as well as uh, this Melanie Ron, uh, Mary Robin at Kowal, and N.K. Jemison. Um, they all have stories as well that you can read read online for free. So, John, I saw, I, I noticed that you dedicated this book to our friend Rob, calling him mm-hmm. the most epic guy you know. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was the most epic guy you know. <laughs> I thought I was the most epic guy you know. <laughs> I, I knew that might get me into a little bit of trouble. Um, little. Uh, singling out, singling out. No, who... you're in epic trouble, boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, guys. Uh, you're you're going to get one in the future, I guess. <laughs> All right, well, I mean, just to wrap things up, uh, we mentioned that you guys are going to be doing this Oz anthology together. So, Doug, do you want to just talk really briefly? How did you get that idea, or how did uh, you and John uh, decide to do this thing together? You know, John's done a million anthologies at this point, but uh, before his first one came out, a couple of years earlier, we had tried to put one out together, and we came close to, you know, having a publisher pick it up, but it didn't quite happen. But during that whole process to that point, we had worked really well together, so we always kind of wanted to work on something else at some point down the road, but the uh, right opportunity never really presented itself. And then John put out another anthology, not that long ago. Dave, I think you actually had a story in this one, Under the Moons of Mars. It was the Barzoom anthology. And that anthology got timed so that it released around the same time as the John Carter movie. And... John and I, this being John Joseph Adams, not John Carter, were at the Nebula Awards in 2010, I think it was. And I was thinking to myself, what a cool idea it was from a marketing standpoint that John was having this anthology come out at the same time as the movie. And just a couple of weeks earlier, I had read about the new Wizard of Oz movie that was coming out from Disney. And before, like, it was even a conscious thought, I just turned to John and I said, you know what we should do? We should do a Wizard of Oz anthology. And John was like, all right. You know, and he talked about it with his agent and his agent liked the idea. And at some point, we just came up with the idea of instead of just doing Wizard of Oz stories to come out, at around the same time as the movie, let's just ask our authors to completely reimagine Oz from the ground up. Like, uh, have Emerald City be an urban fantasy reinvention if someone wants to go that way. Or it could be steampunk. And we got all sorts of crazy different takes on Oz. You know, there was an urban fantasy reinvention. We have one where it takes place in a mental institution in the modern 
day times. There's another one that written by Jane Yolen, and it doesn't even happen in in Oz. There's no Emerald City or anything, but just down to its very bones, the story feels like Oz. And that this is what the authors did. We got like a science fiction take on Oz from David Farland. So the authors all brought a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of imagination to this, and they attacked and approached Oz from every angle you could imagine. And John and I were really happy with the results. And actually, the anthology is uh, illustrated by Galen Dara. You know, she did the cover and also she did individual covers for each uh, individual story as well, partially because um, the publisher is 47 North, um, which is, you know, a division of Amazon Publishing. And uh, uh, as a result, they're going to be publishing the anthology as uh, as a regular anthology. But then also each of the stories is going to be available as a standalone ebook. Um, so sort of like you can buy, uh, you know, individual tracks of a song off of an album or you can buy the whole album. Uh, I know a lot of people have thought about that idea for a while. And uh, the, to my knowledge, this is the first time anyone's actually ever tried to do it. So, I mean, I'm really excited to see how that works out. But because we were doing that, um, you know, we got uh, illustrations for each individual story. So I think that's cool, too, because, you know, all of the Oz books were actually illustrated as well. And so it's just kind of a nice thing to be able to include um, in the anthology is that, you know, to have that full illustration for each story. And when's that coming out? Uh, that's coming out February 26th. All right, cool. So, I mean, I think we're planning to have you back, Doug. Uh, when that book comes out, we can talk more about it then. Oh, that'd be awesome. Thank you, guys. But, uh, you know, for the moment, I think we're going to wrap up this episode. And so, uh, Doug, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Always happy to come back. And thanks again to Stephen Erickson for being our guest today. Big thanks as well to Colleen Beyer and Michael Duda for making PayPal contributions to the podcast. Michael's contribution earned him a spot as only our second-ever top subscriber. To see a complete list of our subscribers, visit our website at geeksguideshow.com and click on PayPal. So in this episode, I mentioned Roger Zelazny a few times, and I just heard that his son Trent, as well as former Realms of Fantasy magazine publisher Warren Lapine, are putting together a Roger Zelazny tribute anthology called Shadows and Reflections, which I'm obviously very excited about. If you want to learn more about that project and maybe contribute some funds, you can find it at www.indiegogo.com slash projects slash 282106. All right, so that was our show. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.